0: welcome to Money Matters. My name is Jim Butler with Forefront Advisors and my co-host this afternoon is uh, uh, Ken Jordan with Freedom Mortgage. Welcome, Ken. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Well, as you know, we don't like to date ourselves with regards to the timing of the, uh, the taping and when the show actually gets aired. Uh, but we're certainly in the month of November, and it's exciting time for us. So let's not uh, uh, talk about what every uh, mainstream media outlet is talking about, but rather let's shift it to um, the home building market and residential construction. Uh, I think most of our viewers uh, can certainly appreciate the amount of development that has been uh, really just exploding over these past several months, um, and uh, consequently. Uh, that's an area where you spend a lot of time. So uh, maybe to start things out, what are do you think are some of the key uh, reasons why home building and construction and lending and refinancing has really exploded in 2020?
1: That's a great question, Jim. And I, I think that there's a couple of components that need to be taken into consideration. And one, without a doubt, is interest rates. Uh, home lending is still uh, interest rates for home lending is are still very low, and and with that, the access to uh, to mortgage money is is creating demand for uh, for homes. Uh, we're, we're we're seeing um, new construction. Uh, grow, of course, post COVID, you know, there was that, that little bit of a downturn there, uh, post COVID because housing supply is very, very low. Um, uh, with housing supply being low, we're seeing appreciation and appreciation is creating equity that buyers can then turn into down payment for their next home. So it's a, it's kind of a, a, a really, a perfect storm for for growth in the housing market. Uh, you know, access to capital is 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 cheap. the uh, The equity is there, so that they can the, the homebuyers can sell their house and, and put a down payment on their next house. and And inventory is low, so we need more supply. We need more homes, and and the, the the builders are are filling that void. So, what
0: happened on the supply side? Because two years ago, three years ago uh it would seem to an amateur like me just driving down the street that there was supply of homes whereas now as you say uh, homes don't stay on the market once they list they don't stay on the market for very long so that clearly is an indication that either the supply is down and or the demand is really high
1: the demand is high I, i would i would i would point to that first as as opposed to the supply being low but obviously it's relative. So, of course, supply is only low because demand is high, but demand is high, I think, because the the real estate bubble or the economic downturn that we faced uh, earlier on, uh, maybe, dec- you know, in, in the decade, um, it, it kept people in their homes longer than they necessarily planned to be there, uh, because for a couple of reasons, uh, but not the least of which it, there was not much equity. And, and home's va- home values stayed relatively stagnant. So if you bought a home in 2008, 2015, it was worth roughly what you bought it for. Um, if you recall coming into the 2008 real estate bubble, there was a lot of high LTV, loan to value ratio products out there, which meant that there wasn't any equity and uh, there wasn't a lot of equity in a lot of these homes to begin with. So you, you couple the lack of equity in the homes with a, a prolonged period of stagnation in values and people just didn't have the money to sell their houses. Uh, they were, they were either, they were worth what they bought it for in some cases worth less than what they bought it for. And it kind of forced people through that 2010 to through 2000, let's say 17, uh, to, to stay in their homes longer. And, and as interest rates came down prior to the pandemic, uh, we started to really see an uptick because, uh, you know, now people are able to sell their house. So now they're, 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 they're coming into the market. Now you, you factor that with a boatload of uh, first-time buyers that for economic reasons, weren't able to enter the home buying space. Well, now they have the ways and means to enter the home buying space and it's creating that, uh, that demand. Are there any
0: uh, particular areas where home buying is stronger than the other? Meaning, is the urban market stronger than the rural market or suburban market seems to be taking off or is it pretty strong across the board through all geographic areas uh, as well as age groups?
1: There was a strong real estate market uh, prior to uh, COVID-19. I think that with the regional lockdowns and, and, you know, kind of people staying at home, we started to see a, a desire for more space. So w- when the market opened back up, the especially in the Philadelphia area, the surrounding counties, they saw a tremendous uptick in in demand and I think that that was driven primarily for uh, because coming out of the city uh, where people were mm-hmm. on top of each other to an area where they had more space was something that uh, people desired. but also I think the work from home transition, and the, the marketplace has affected it tremendously. So I think what we're, what we're seeing there is that if people can work from home, then why do they, they – they don't need to be in the city. So we started to see that 45 minutes to an hour and a half. That marketplace really took off because, hey, if you have to drive to – it takes me an hour and a half to get to, the work, to get to the office, and I only have to do it once a week or twice a week versus every day, all of a sudden it's, it's doable. So, so they're more willing to go further out, get more space. Um, so, so I do think that that has uh, that, that, that has driven the suburban uh, the suburban uh, increase in, in, uh, in demand.
0: So I know you don't have a crystal ball behind you but
1: if you do look <laughs>
0: forward as you talk with uh, clients and prospective clients, what do you see 2021 looking like and even beyond that more of the same?
1: Certainly there could be items. Uh, unpredictable items that could uh, affect the marketplace but all signs lead to yes we' we're, we're expecting rates to stay low um whether or not they go any lower remains to be seen some people think they could go lower um but but yes i, I think that there's a there's enough of a demand that we should see a solid real estate market through two t- 2021 beyond that uh remains to be seen
0: right right. So I guess the point is for some of our listeners might be that if they're in the home buying market or home selling market, they might want to think about doing that more sooner than later, say over the next three to six months, and, and kind of move forward through 2021. Uh, but I agree. I think interest rates, at least with regards to uh, monetary policy controlled by the Fed, uh, you know, as far as the eye can see, uh, so to speak, we're going to see low interest rates for a while.
1: So it should be interesting.
0: Um, I think so. Um, we have a question uh, from uh, Zach Nance in Philadelphia. He's writing in and he's he's asking uh, what are the advantages of arms and fixed rate
1: mortgages? So I actually had this conversation with a borrower just uh, just yesterday and an arm, uh, refers to an adjustable rate mortgage, uh, is an int- is, is a mortgage rate that is fixed for a period of time, and then it will adjust based on uh, whatever market it's tied to. It'll adjust uh, going forward. So typically, you'll see a three-year fixed period, a five-year fixed period, or a seven-year fixed period. The advantage to an adjustable rate mortgage is typically you'll get a lower start rate. So, if the thirty, if the thirty-year fixed was, let's say, at three percent, your ten-year ARM might be at two point seven five. In which case, for that ten-year period, you're 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 getting a discount. But you're, you're, there's inherent risk that after that ten-year period is up, that the, mar- the rate could change. Now, that's not necessarily the relationship between the ten-year and the um, and the thirty-year fixed, but that's just an example. The fixed rate, the benefit to a fixed rate, simply put, is that it can't change. And if you're going to be in the house for a long time, you don't want to be in a, in a situation where your mortgage payment could go up. Um, so, so that's why most people choose the fixed rate mortgage. Now, <clears throat> if you know you're only going to be in the house for five years, if you're certain that it's a, a starter home and, and, and you plan to to, to move, then an arm can be a great option because, you know, you're not going to be there uh, long past when it begins to adjust. One thing you do got to be careful of is that would, we don't know, right, the, the the unseen. So you could find yourself in there longer than expected, and, and you might have to either refinance into a fixed rate uh, or just kind of deal with some of the volatility, which may or may not be that big of a deal.
0: Right, right. Well, good. Good answer. I appreciate that. That uh, simplifies it and and clarifies it at the same time. If you have a question that you would like uh, our expert panel to address, uh, please write in and let us know what your thoughts and questions are.
1: You can have your questions answered on Money Matters. Please go to our website, money-matterstv.com. On our homepage, click on the banner on the right that says, Send Us Your Questions. While you're on our website, you can find information about our hosts and guests, as well as show notes and links about this show and past shows. Money Matters is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to Money Matters while you're on the go. That website address, again, is money, M-O-N-E-Y, matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, TV.com.
0: Welcome back. Our guest this evening is Michael Dever of Brandywine Asset Management. Uh, welcome, Michael. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Jim. Thanks.
0: What I'd like to do is start out um, our conversation to help uh, our listeners understand who is Brandywine Asset Management and how did you get started in uh, with the company?
2: Brandywine Asset Management was founded by me in 1982. So we've got almost 40 years of history now in advising and managing assets for a wide range of investors, from individuals to um, large corporate investors like um, uh, McKinsey Retirement Plan uh, was a past investor, some other large hedge funds, multi-billion dollar hedge funds were investors. Uh, Money center banks were investors as well. But it's it really runs the gamut from our standpoint from... Um, a client with an IRA account that they're looking to have managed to you know the largest investors.
0: Do you have uh, partners and other employees who work with you?
2: We do. There's there's a few of us um, that are full time, and then we have a number of uh, virtual employees that help with some of the operations and uh, research side of the business. Um, but for the most part, it's a it's pretty tight knit uh, small group.
0: Right. Right. So maybe starting out, uh, taking it to the next step, uh, given the world in which we uh, were thrown into in 2021, um, and will certainly 2020 rather, and extend into 2021, how has COVID impacted your business and the relationships with your clients? So it's, it's
2: been really interesting, and we're in the beginning, it was a negative it's really turned into a positive for us in our business. And if there's a silver lining with COVID in running a business, it's that people no longer expect you to hop on a plane and fly out to see them in Chicago or in San Francisco. It's very much accepted now that we can get on a phone call, on a Zoom call and, uh, and interact. And that suffices as the meeting. So I'll have days where I'll have five, six meetings in five or six different cities, whereas I, I could have never have done that in the past
0: right do you think they're as effective or effective enough or but what, what's your what's your view on that
2: yeah th- I mean that's that's a great question because at first, I would have thought they wouldn't be very effective because people are used to that that nuance of sitting across the table right. from them um what i've been learning and finding out is that because now that is the standard and this is the accepted way to do business they're they're very well accepted uh we're in the process of launching a new product uh be up and running in january whereas normally we would have had a a really difficult time spent tens of thousands of dollars at least traveling the country and uh, meeting with different potential investors we've been doing it all for a 16 a month zoom subscription um and I really think we cover everything we need to cover, and it's um, it's pretty easy for me just to pull up screenshots and uh, share a desktop and run through presentations. If they have questions on some of the raw research we do that normally I wouldn't have had sitting across the table from them, I could pull that up and show it to
1: them. Mike, I have a question for you. So, with with the COVID uh, trends, um, you know, some local businesses have been impacted negatively give me advice for local business that local businesses that have uh, that have been uh, impacted negatively by covid
2: yeah yeah i mean it's it's somewhat similar to the advice i give to any entrepreneur anybody that's starting a business and the the first thing you really need to do is is watch your costs now it's it's obvious but i think this is a a period where obviously the businesses that are having substantially um, reduced revenues the only way they're gonna make it through this is by reducing costs first and foremost. Secondly, they need to identify if there are opportunities to, to pivot their business from whatever it was they were doing into a, into a different direction. And you're seeing that with some of the, the restaurants out there and they're getting a little more creative with their seating or with their delivery, um, or that wasn't something that they, they might've been open to be doing before. So, it, but if you if you can do those two things, you have a shot, but um, I, I feel bad. There's a lot of businesses, I think, um, as hard as they try, if there's nothing coming in at the top line, it's going to be really hard to make it through to the other side.
0: Looking at government uh, it, it, uh, uh, interaction and um, the stimulus programs that have been enacted so far, Mike, uh, uh, given what will likely happen in the future, which is there's going to be more stimulus. I think that's a fair bet. How much and when, of course, we don't know. Uh, What impact do you think future stimulus will have on equity prices?
2: So what's happened and what's really interesting is the stimulus money got poured into the economy. And to some extent it was used for carrying businesses through. But in a large extent, it just provided this huge liquidity slush fund. And you saw some of the numbers uh, quite likely of, of savings rates just skyrocketing and people were taking their, their COVID money and using it to invest, you know, some, some debt being paid down, but a lot of it's gone into stocks. And I've, for example, we've got a, uh, a friend that has a business. He's he's been doing great, uh, great entrepreneur building it over the decade, last decade. He ended up with this being, even though he's in the event business, this was his best year ever. Because the PPP money paid for his employees, what events he was able to run was kind of all dropped to the bottom line for him. So it's it's been really interesting. If you get this, the stimulus so far has been, I think, the key, the primary driver behind the stock market um, activity we've seen so far. I think a further stimulus will have a a similar impact. At at some point, you can't support 100 PEs. Um, The growth just isn't there. Uh, and, and prices will um, react and come back down to what level they should be at. But for right now, it's just liquidity-driven market.
0: If you were a betting man, do you see future stimulus coming into play?
2: Yeah, it almost has to come into play. And I think what we're seeing right now, because we, you know, it is a timely, and, and even though it's not a timely show, yesterday was the election, um, and it's, it's likely that there's going to be you know, some give and take. But um, there will be some level of stimulus. It might not be to the extent it would have been had Nancy Pelosi made a, made a deal with uh, Trump prior to the election. But you're still talking a trillion, trillion plus dollars. It's going to get uh, sent into the economy.
1: So it sounds like there's uh, there's an understanding that, you know, there will be a correction and amateurs uh, certainly try Uh, To time the market is there ever is there ever a a time where timing the
2: years? Um,
1: there are
2: Opportunities and I wrote a book about this in 2011 my my book jackass investing don't do it profit from it we talk about the opportunity of being able to fade investor behavior and, and Be able to time in and out of different markets based on extremes and investor sentiment, but that's just a highly selective trade that might last for a month or so to time the market so that you're catching the bottom um, of a bear market and getting out before the next bear market sets in, uh, that's, that's really impossible. Uh, it's, it's not going to happen. And so to, to time the market in the way that people talk about timing the market requires near 100% accuracy. Um, it, all you have to do is miss the first month of a new bull market, and you, you, you might as well have stayed in the bear market you know, because you've given up so much of the upside.
0: Is now a time to, uh, for investors to uh, consider some of the tech stocks that have done so well in the past several months? Is it too late for them to get in for future growth?
2: So so there is a difference between overall market timing and, and um, t- t- different types of investing, whether it's going to be a momentum uh, growth investing or a value type play. I, I mean, it, well, so my sense would be more from the longer term, if you want to be in and make money, you, you don't chase a 100 PE or you don't chase a Tesla 1000 PE, um, that those markets and those prices historically have always come back. And um, it, it may be that it comes back in time, that 100 PE for an Amazon makes sense. And five years from now, it just treads water for that period. And you don't really give up much in the meantime. Um, but for the most part, what people need to be focusing on is the separation of the business from the stock. And they're not the same thing at all. And Amazon's a great business. They are dominant. You know, Tesla's got a great car. Um, It looks like they're going to be a great business for a long time. Doesn't mean you should own their stocks.
1: Mike, what is a, we were talking earlier, you used the term target date fund. Can you tell me a little more about that?
2: Right. So target date funds are being used um, really extensively now in retirement. And the idea is that um, an investor, instead of it being five years from retirement, trying to you know, ride into the stock market in retirement, the target date funds say, oh, if you've got five years, we're going to start cutting you back on your equities, putting more fixed income, for example. If, you've, if you're a 20-year-old, you're going to be pretty predominantly in, in equities. I have an issue with that, though. And our approach and our belief in that, it's, it's really just sort of a, a, a naive asset allocation model that doesn't differentiate between... People's individual financial situations. I mean, there are some people who really do need, you know, going into retirement to maybe be a little more aggressive with their investments than others. Um, they may have some other income from other sources uh, and, and they can take more of a risk because if they lose some money in, in investing, it's going to be offset or they're going to fill it in with other assets or other asset flows, you know, coming into them. So, it's it's turned out to be a, a panacea almost that people look at it and say okay this is the answer. Um, it's really far from that though I would say as well.
1: Yeah, I mean if you if everything is age based, then sure that takes away that takes out of the equation tons of other variables right.
2: It it absolutely does, and the one main variable takes out. And you're kind of making this naive assumption that going into retirement you don't want to have as much if. If you're just looking at, and most of these are very naive in that they're only assets they allocate to our stocks or bonds. You know, so they're they're longer, they have more stocks um, when you've got longer to retirement and less when you get closer. But what if the, if you look at the last 20 years performance of the stock market in the U.S., the first three years were a disaster. The first 10 years averaged negative 1% annualized returns. That's with dividends reinvested. So what if that was your last 10 years? leading into retirement now. And um, then, okay, might've made sense to have lightened up that exposure. But what if you just retired today and over the last five, 10 years, you were lightening your exposure at the very time you just came out of suffering through full exposure in a big bear market, 10 year bear market, essentially. And and then you started lightening up just when you ended up into a 10 year bull market. So that's why I say it's real naive way of asset allocation that's, um, you know, not really that advisable in my mind for investors or you know, people looking at retirement.
0: Mike, you're touching on what I think is key to um, uh, a lot, or on top of a lot of investors' mind, and it has to do with risk management. So, how do you know how how else could investors participate in the growth of the market if things like stimulus are going to continue to allow equity prices to to rise? Um, and if there's uh, you know, just companies continuing to grow and uh, more technology coming onto the scene, so they want to participate, but they want to somehow protect against uh, a pullback of any significance that might put some of those long-range plans in jeopardy. Are there any risk management strategies that you can share with us? The,
2: there are. I mean, that's uh, the, the product that we're in the process of launching is that's what it does. It, um, it, it's called it Brandywine Protected 500, Um, It's going to be launched in January for retirement plans, retirement accounts. And it's intended to solve these issues. And um, what it does is give 100% exposure to the S&P 500, but with downside protection, that's paid for through what we call a return driver-based diversifier. And we won't pay for that protection every year, but um, in a way, if you think about it, if you're owning the S&P 500, you're taking the risk, and it's pretty concentrated risk, because when the market goes down, everything goes down together. And, and that's, all, that's when risk is, not going on, on the upside. So if you replace that risk by buying put options, for example, that might cost you 5% a year to protect that downside. Now all you need to do is find some way to earn 5% a year to pay for that put protection. And you can do it in a more diversified fashion that lowers risk even further. So essentially this concept that you know, we've come up with is called risk replacement, where instead of taking on the risk you require to earn 10% in the stock market, you take on the risk required to earn 5% to pay for the protection against the stock market dropping. So th- there are some things that people are doing out there other than us. Um, this, is, this is our approach to it. Um, we developed it for a large family office um, a couple of years ago. And uh, you know I think it's something that we're, we're seeing a lot of really strong interest in it from uh, retirement plans. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you have any particular uh, thoughts about international uh, uh, equity market in comparison to the domestic marketplace.
2: Yeah, so the, the, the other thing you can do, and, and I, yeah, I went right into talking about, you know, being long S&P and protecting that exposure. But the, the other thing, and I talk about it, it's really the theme of my book, is diversifying your risk mix across various return drivers. And a return driver is simply the primary underlying condition that drives the price of the market. And if you think of the stock market over the long term, it's powered by corporate earnings growth. Well, that is a single return driver. And in the short term, stocks are driven by investor sentiment. Investors don't want to own stocks. They'll sell off the market, even if earnings are still growing. So what you need to do is diversify your portfolio so you're not dependent on that single return driver of corporate earnings growth. Diversifying globally does add some diversification, but it's really pretty minor because when you have global demand that softens, um, you could have the sell off across global stock markets as well so there's there's other products other ways to look at things out there where you can you can identify opportunities that are driven by return drivers that are not dependent on corporate earnings growth and um it's a little short in this talk to talk about it here but you know if people want to uh to to see what i'm talking about they can see that in in my book as well
0: right right Uh, do you get the question from any clients or prospective clients what kind of rate of return should they expect into the new year?
2: I do. Um, so we, we every now and then, and probably every few years, will run something that gives an indication of what a 60-40 portfolio return should look like going forward. And it's pretty low. And uh, it's pretty low for a couple of reasons. You know, one, leading into the COVID crisis, we had um, profit margins increasing, price earnings ratios increasing. So, for example, you have Apple stock quadrupling over the last couple years with earnings not really growing that much. So with P/E ratios increasing to being out of line with historical norms, if you look over the next five or 10 years and expect those to maybe come into anywhere near a historical norm, and people will argue whether they should or not based on interest rates, but the reality is at some point they will come back into that mean uh, teens range, mid-teens range. Um, you, You really have a pretty low return expectations. What you get on fixed income, it's in front of you. It's very transparent. You know what that is. If you buy a ten-year bond from the government, you're going to get your eighty basis points. Um, so when you combine those two, you're really looking at returns that are in the low, at best, mid single digits.
0: Right. From right. from
2: those those at from the typical 60-40 portfolio allocation.
0: So here's a really simple wrap up question since we're winding down on our time together. If there were three key takeaways that our listeners could understand from our conversation, what would those be in few words? Okay. So the,
2: the, the these weren't actually from our conversation, but the first key takeaway is that you've got the opportunity to save money, save money. And I've been preaching this to my kids. My, my one son, who's uh 24 this year, uh, he's he's saving. It's it's an unbelievable amount. I won't say the number, but a high percentage of his his salary. He's not making a lot of money, but he's putting a big percentage of it away. Um, that's so important. People put that off, expecting it to happen at some later date. Save as much as you can as soon as you can. The second is in those situations, make sure at least you're getting the free money. If you work for a company and they're matching you in some way with the 401k plan get the free money, you know, make sure you you get that match in. Um, And then I guess um, on the flip side, not flip side, but in the different, if you're not working for someone, you've got your own business plan, your own ideas, definitely run with it. Um, You'll see a lot of wealth that's built through people building private businesses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Good answers. Thank you for that wrap up, uh, Mike, by all means. And thank you for listening to our show. Uh, Our uh, guest next week will be uh, Louis Grass from Agile Management, and they are management and project consultants. uh, And I'm sure there's going to be a lot to learn from that conversation as well. In the meantime, thank you for listening.
2: Thanks, Jim.